uh, you've got, like I said, that 1% good faith deposit for the loan. That's very common for a lender to ask for a deposit when you sign that commitment with them to go forward and, and finish up and close the deal. Before we get into today's episode, I want to remind you that Blue Spruce Capital is lending on one to four unit fix and flips in multiple states. Contact Blue Spruce Capital by going to the show notes. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by realbluespruce.com. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam A. Adams, the win-win maker, and I'm excited to be here today with David Tupin. David, how are you today? I am doing great, man. Thanks for having me on the show. And thank you for being on the show because we're going to offer a lot of inspiration to some of the listeners who might be, let's just say that they are, they just turned 30 and they're thinking to themselves, I'm not ready. I'm not old enough. I don't have enough money. I can't do this. Um, I'm not sure if real estate's my thing. Maybe I need to go and, and do some other job wholesale for a little while until I make up some money so that I can do this. But David Tupin is 23 years old. He's got multiple properties. He's selling a couple of them. Uh, we're excited to know that 24 of his units will be sold tomorrow. Or actually, they're already sold because this episode doesn't come out the day we record. Uh, so they are already sold. And what we want to chat about here is how he underwrites some of these deals. Um, and we'll just kind of get into that. David Tupin, will you get into just talking about what was going on through your mind the day that you decided that you're going to do real estate investing? Yeah, it was actually an interesting day for me when I finally took the leap. Um, I'm sure like many of your listeners, uh, I, I, I took months and months just reading books and listening to podcasts. Um, you know, Rods was one of them, Bigger Pockets, uh, stuff like that. And um, I did a couple internships during college in investment banking consulting, auditing. And I had a couple job offers. The day I got out of my last internship, I actually uh, respectfully declined all my job offers and said, I'm going into real estate. I've been studying this for long enough. And uh, I, I had to corner myself. I knew that was the only way I would actually go through with it. So um, back myself into a corner, burned the bridge, and I uh, just kind of dove in. The day that you backed yourself into a corner, how much money did you have in the bank? I think I'd saved up like 15 grand. Okay. 15. All right. So you didn't have the $10 million that you needed to close your 96 unit. Absolutely not. No. How, how did you close that 96 unit with just 15 in the grand uh, in the bank? <laughs> yeah. So uh, great uh, financial partners, investors. Um, I brought in a sponsor who was able to help, um, help me get the loan. Um, and then I also had uh, another guy who I gave some, uh, KP or key principal equity in the deal. He kind of came on as a partner um, because he brought in six or 700,000 of the, the million seven equity I needed. So I gave him a little piece of the ownership in addition for uh, bringing in so many investors. Then the rest were just, um, you know, your typical uh, $50,000, $100,000 a piece investor. Um, I think we had 20, we had over 20 investors on that, on that raise, uh, 1.7 million. So um, you know, that's how we did it with a sponsor and pounding the phones for investors. All right. So what was the total purchase price again? So that one was 4.2 million is about 43 a door, 44 a door. So 4.2 million, you raised quite a bit of equity 
for pulling 1.7. Um, I'm not doing the math, but that seems like 40-ish percent. Yeah, so the structure we had with that deal was um, on the purchase price, we did uh, an 80-20 loan is a Freddie Mac small balance. Um, we got this in September 2017 when interest rates were a little lower. So the, the rate was a 4.65. Um, it was a three-year interest only, 10-year term, 80-20 loan to value, uh, and 30-year amortization. So um, it, was a, it was a good loan. The small balance program, it worked out, worked out great. Um, and the additional capital is, that was raised consists of closing costs, uh, consists of our acquisition fee of 3% of the purchase price. Um, and then the rest of that, about $500,000 was towards renovations for the property. We don't so, talk about acquisition fee enough on this podcast. And you just mentioned that it was 3% mm -hmm. of purchase price. 126000 yeah. So you had 15000 in the bank. You bought a four-point-something million-dollar property. And the day that you closed it, you and your partners made how much? 126000 And And what I think a couple people ask, I, I don't feel this way. I feel like it's a lot of work putting these deals. I think it's a lot of work analyzing them, underwriting them, finding them, making the uh, the relationships with the brokers to bring them to you, flying out there, hiring inspectors. I think there's a ton of work. What would you say to somebody who said, you know, what did you do to earn 120000 before we even start at the day that we closed this deal? Yeah, I think, you know, part of the reason to have the acquisition fee for the sponsors is for taking the risk on the project. We put up the earnest money deposit, myself and the sponsor, um, you know, which, which actually went hard before we had all the money raised. So that's, that's a little risky, uh, for anyone who's just starting. I mean, we didn't have uh, a track record of raising, you know, that money for this kind of a deal. So, uh, going into it was a huge risk for us. We, we had, uh, every intention of closing it, but had no guarantee since we hadn't done it before. Um, part of the risk is putting up, you know, uh, application fees for the loans. You, you want to do a Freddie Mac small balance loan, you might put up 10,000 up front for uh, the loan app fee. And then um, it, I think there's a 1% good faith deposit. There's another 33,000 uh, that we had to put up um, to, to when we signed that commitment letter. So, you know, let's say we signed a commitment, we didn't raise the money, or if it doesn't go through, we're, we're putting money out on the line, uh, taking that risk. And then I think part of it is, you know, obviously doing all the due diligence work, ensuring that you're, you're buying a good deal for your investors, a safe deal. And then all the time that you spend searching for, uh, for hundreds of, you know, through hundreds of deals to find that one gem, that's going to be a good deal for your investors, you know, and all that combined, um, it's, it's absolutely uh, worth uh, the two to 5% fee that you get on the front end. There you go. I love it. And thank you for going through that. And one of the things that you covered, even though I didn't specifically ask you uh, to do it is all of the closing costs. There's a, there is risk with EMD, earnest money deposits. There's risk, especially when it goes hard and you haven't raised all the money. So you're next on the line. I've always said to people, if you plan on closing about, a, if you plan to close a $10 million property, mm. plan to plan to be, have to be at least liquid as a sponsor, 3% of that, $300,000 to just get that to the finish line across with, with all the fees. I've always used the word 
the number 3%. And you're a big underwriter, and we're definitely going to pick your brain a lot today. Would you say that 3% is slightly high or slightly low? I mean, I think that you, you or, or a sponsor you're working with should have at least 3%. To be able to, to close the deal, you're going to need you know, more than that. You're, well, 10% of the loan amount um, at, a, at a minimum. But for the earnest money deposit, if you're doing a $10 million deal nowadays, I'm seeing guys put up you know, at least $250,000 deposit for a deal that size. Um, okay. And you, know, you, you should be prepared to do that along with all those other costs we mentioned. And, and I've got some other ones here. I mean, uh, you've got, like I said, that 1% good faith deposit for the loan. That's very common for a lender to ask for a deposit when you sign that commitment with them to go forward and, and finish up and close the deal. Um, you've got attorneys, legal fees. If you're doing a larger deal, you could spend up to twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars putting your, uh, you know, for your attorneys to put together the operating agreement, uh, PPM, uh, that's the private placement memorandum, another document for your investors. Um, you're going to spend money on having your attorneys review the mortgage documents, um, purchase agreement up front, uh, all that stuff. You know, you're going to have to pay for appraisals unless they're paid at closing. You're going to have to pay for appraisals, surveys, environmentals, um, all that stuff. So you just want to be aware uh, and conscious of those things so that, you know, it, either you or a partner uh, in the deal has that type of liquidity. Great. Thank you for going over that. This is very important thing stuff and we don't, we don't go over this enough. So I am really grateful to be chatting sure. about it right now. Happy to. And there's a couple that you didn't mention that were surprises to us on our team on our first deals uh, where there was prepaid insurance. So it was, they were asking for a year or even 15 months of yep. insurance payments. And we we're like, Whoa, we didn't raise, <laughs> we didn't raise 30 grand for that. We need to, yeah. where's that 30 grand going to come from? Same thing with um, a utility deposit. And the yeah. tax escrow. Sometimes they want two months tax escrow up front as well. So I, I now budget, those are things, just like you, you said, I didn't budget for 12 months of insurance up front in my first deal. So I knew to do it on the 96 unit. Uh, I, I add that in and now it's in my analyzer. So every deal going forward, it just automatically calculates a year worth of insurance up front. Awesome. So let's, let's get into um, talking about how to underwrite these deals. And there's a lot of reasons why I want to go over this. And one of them is because a lot of people may think that it's really, really hard when it's just pretty hard. And then there's a lot of people that think it's just so super easy. Um, they can look at it in 10 minutes and they know if it's a, if it's a deal. Um, and in our experience, it takes hours to, it takes hours or days to really underwrite. To properly do it. Yes. Yeah. So I want to go through this and see if we can find a way to step-by-step step it. I know we didn't really plan. Um, to go through the step-by-steps, but I've got a notepad and I'm going to put them all in order and I'm going to make sure that we, um, by the end of this podcast today, we're going to have the way that you, um, that you underwrite a property. You're, we're going to have that whole strategy laid out in a step-by-step -step formula um, so we understand what's first, what's second, what's third, and what costs to really look out for. Um, and David uh, is going to be the one to really shine and help us do this because I'm in this high-end mastermind and most of y'all know about this. I've mentioned it on the podcast. I was excited to go out there. Uh, a good man named Rod Cleef uh, puts this mastermind on. We have Kathy Fedke uh, and we've got 23-year-old David Tupin 
<laughs> who is focused on multifamily acquisitions and other commercial real estate. And I think that most of the people in that room, there was 30 high-end fix and flipper, or excuse me, uh, not, flip, not fix and flippers, high-end multifamily uh, acquisition specialists. And most of us were more uh, impressed with what David knew than than what we were with the rest of us. So you're in for <laughs> a treat. Let's, let's go into this. So when you're this getting- is perfect too, because I just, I, you know, I work with a couple people that I teach how to analyze deals and uh, uh, coach some people. And I, I just put this together an email yesterday. I analyzed uh, a deal uh, with somebody and I put together the first couple steps. Okay. Um, exactly how I, how I do it. So let's uh, do it. Let's do it. We just jump right in. Yeah. And I'll just stop you if I have a question. Okay, perfect. Um, yeah. So the first thing is you've got to know your criteria. You have to know what, what you want to buy. If you're buying on your own, you're looking to buy something, um, you know, you're going to have different criteria as opposed to if you're looking to syndicate, um, you know, so the first thing going in, figure out what your criteria is, and that's going to be based around what are your long-term goals and getting into real estate investing. And that's a whole nother topic in itself. But, uh, so the first topic is, or the first step is know your criteria. Do you want uh, a 50 to hundred unit property, um, in a, a C plus to B minus area, something with some value add, um, and something in a, a growth oriented market. Maybe that's your criteria, right? So, when I get a deal sent across my desk, first thing I do is I check my criteria. Uh, my criteria is 100 plus units in, you know, growth markets, C and B areas, etc. So if it doesn't fit that uh, right away, I'll I'll tell a broker, um, you know, I'm not interested, uh, and and I also tell them this is what I am interested in, so that they know going forward, or this is why I'm not interested. That's very important. Um, so that's step one. Is it, you know, within your market? Does it fit your criteria? Second. Um, well, I guess an additional criteria to that is, is age, you know, does it fit for me? I want 1970s and newer, uh, reasoning behind that being, um, stuff built in the 1960s and older. Uh, it's, it's very common to have plumbing issues, a lot more deferred maintenance, uh, potentially electrical issues. Uh, I don't look at anything with flat roofs. Um, there's some exceptions to that, but for the most part, I don't. Um, and so on and so forth. So there's all this criteria that you've got to have as an investor. And I know it may seem very overwhelming at first um, uh, if you haven't analyzed many deals, but, but these are all things that are really common once you've looked at a lot of deals. Uh, so, you know, anyone that you really want to get a better grasp on this stuff, you've just, you just have to practice. There's really no other, other way to really learn that information without, without practicing it and, and understanding it. So um, the next step I look for is, is there value add? I'll, I'll check, you know, is there an asking price for it or is it uh, unlisted or, uh, you know, marketed without a price as a lot of properties are nowadays. Um, and, and I'll just kind of see, can I buy this at a price that's, that might be reasonable and add value to it? Um, ways to add value. Uh, so many different ways you can, you know, the two main ones are increase your income or reduce your expenses. And those can be done in a variety of different ways. You can increase your income by increasing rents. And you can determine that simply by looking at their rent roll, where their current average rents at. And then I hop on apartments.com and see what's being rented in the area. Um, and what's going on. Am I, am I a hundred dollars off on rents, a hundred dollars low? Well, that's great. Maybe I have an opportunity to uh, increase those. Um, what else? Different ways to increase income. Um, utility billing. 
you can, uh, you know, if you look in a market and a lot of properties are, let's say, for example, billing back water to tenants, it's, it's very common, um, I guess, to back up, it's very common for tenants to pay their own electric and gas. Those are typically individually metered. Um, a, a lot of times landlords will be paying uh, water and sewer and trash. Uh, if you see a property, like for example, the 96 unit that I bought, um, you know, a lot of the other properties in the area were billing back water either by a flat fee per month or something called rubs where it's just a ratio of your unit size and, and, you know, tenants per unit and they, they bill it back to them that way. Uh, you can collect a, you know, a substantial, substantial amount of income back just by, you know, getting reimbursed for the utilities that you pay out. So that's another way to increase income. Um, Ways to reduce expenses, better management. Um, a lot of times you'll, you'll see high expenses across the board uh, and, and it's just a mismanaged property. They're overpaying for appliances or they're, you know, they're spending way too much on, on employees at the property. Um, they, are, uh, they have too expensive of an insurance policy. I mean, there's so many different ways that you can um, you know, reduce expenses. And the best way to determine that is simply by looking at a, a, a T12, uh, which is um, a financial statement. It shows the past 12 months of income and expenses. So um, am, am I going too quick there? Is that all making sense? Absolutely. You okay. are making sense. But since we paused, I will cover a little bit of what we've talked sure. about so far. Perfect. So when we're analyzing deals, Number one, most important thing is you have to have criteria in place. You have to know what you're looking for. What asset type am I doing? Am, am I looking and am I open to anything that is mixed use, commercial, multifamily, self-storage? Am I looking for single families, 50 plus, 100 plus doors? What is it? Once you know that, you've got to know what area, what type of area it's in. So we're talking with David. He's saying he likes C&B areas. CMB properties. He likes value add. He likes a growth market. He wants to know what the age of property is. This is important to him because the older the property is, the more problems it has, i.e. plumbing. And then he'll never do a flat roof. So this is just some of his automatic criteria because he, he's, he's been through it. He understands it and he's set that in place. So it kind of can make it easy on him. If he goes through it and he says, okay, this is older than I want, I'm not going to do it. Or, hey, this has a flat roof, I'm not going to do it. Or, hey, there's no value add opportunity, I'm not going to do it. So it's, it's a way for him to quickly uh, disapprove some of the deals. Yep, exactly. When, when it goes through and when, when we know that it's going to pass it, his question is, he's, 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 what is the ask price? What's the whisper price? What are they asking for this? If I can get a price and then how can I add value? So he's talking about adding value in two specific ways. And one is to increase income and the other is to decrease expenses. One of the only, one of the ways to increase income is through rents. And that's not the only way. Another one that David was talking about was something called RUBS, Ratio Utility Billing System. Then we're talking about laundry or covered parking. There's all sorts of ways in addition to just rents to add some value there. And now we're talking about decreasing expenses, which is another way to increase your NOI. You, you take away some of those expenses and you hit on probably the best two so far. Well, the best one so far is management. The best way when, is to figure out 
if you're overpaying on something is looking and seeing what's going on with this management company because there's a good chance that you need to fire them. Um, I've heard I've heard stories of people paying um, six thousand dollars a month or eight thousand dollars a month for mowing, for just for mowing. And then when you look at it, and you, you could hire somebody else for less than two hundred dollars a month for the exact same uh, lawn to just come out there a couple times a month and mow it. They did this one thing one time and saved almost eight thousand dollars a year. And once they saved eight thousand or eight thousand dollars a month, and once they saved eight thousand dollars a month for five of the months, that's forty thousand dollars. And just on a eight cap, that's something like six hundred thousand dollars that they made, like that. A lot of money, a lot of value add. That's huge. Yeah, so, six hundred thousand dollars. That's another four hundred thousand you could refi out. That's another six hundred thousand dollars in profit. That's 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 huge. So a lot of good stuff as, as we're going through this. You were talking about the management and the T12, but I have a question to bounce off of you that a lot of listeners who are new, they might not know what is like a normalized expense. What is a, what is an, a ratio that is, you're normally going to see? How much does um, a roof normally cost? How much does... Uh, management companies usually cost how much does utilities usually cost and when when we don't know those things and we look at this t12 then we're unable to answer the your further questions on how can i add value so do you have some information some place that we can go where we can learn this quickly what is a normal expense uh ratio what's a normal cost for certain things to to come into play where it might be easier for somebody new to start actually looking at these deals yeah i mean i can i can run through some off the top of my head i haven't you know and i should i haven't put together any type of document that that does give those ranges those per unit which is typically what we go by as a per unit cost uh, annually um but, you know, to be honest, I, I really never had any resource like that. And, and I'm, I'm sure they are out there. Um, you know, one, one resource that may be out there is Rod Cleef's book, uh, if that's okay for me to plug that. Anything, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think Rod Cleef, if anyone listening uh, knows of him, he has a multifamily podcast. And, and if you go to rodcleef.com, he should have a free, uh, free book there that has um, a lot of that information um, on a per unit cost basis. But really, I, you know, I, I just analyzed so many deals uh, uh, on my own and I started seeing trends and, and just noticed that certain expenses on certain properties seemed higher or lower than they really should. And, and that's what you need to get a feel for. Um, you know, you, you need to know if, if I'm looking at a hundred unit property and the water bill is 80,000 a year, um, you know, that seems a little high. That's 800 a unit a year, uh, where, where my typical range is about 500 to 650 a unit for water. So stuff like that is, is, is what you really want to start recognizing, um, understanding, uh, repairs and maintenance costs and separating that out from payroll, especially once you get into larger properties. Um, you're going to have a, a, because you, you might have a full-time onsite maintenance person, your repair and maintenance um, uh, category uh, and your expenses is mostly going to consist of just supplies. It's going to be lower, um, typically around four to 600 a unit. 
Um, payroll, once you get into larger properties, it can be anywhere from 1,000 to 1,300 a unit. Um, insurance, I'm, I'm always safe and budget about 350 a door. When you start to get to the point where you own hundreds of units, thousands of units, I really do see a lot of owners getting more towards 300, 275 to 300 a door. Uh, but I'm, I'm always pretty conservative and I, I do about 350 a door uh, annually for insurance. Um, let's see what else. I always have a line item in there for turnover and a line item for reserves. They're both 250 a unit a year. And uh, some people think that's excessive and um, you know, good luck getting through a year uh, in your property without spending that 250 a year uh, on turnover and reserves. Cause it's, it's going to happen. You need to budget, you need to budget for down the road when you have uh, parking lot issues that come up or a roof that, that needs to get done. You need to be able to set that money aside now so that in five, six, seven, eight years, you're not strapped for cash trying to, you know, keep your building up. So uh, those are a couple different ones. Taxes can be all over the place. Um, the most important thing when I underwrite is making sure I'm, I'm confident in my tax assumptions for what the taxes are going to go to. Um, and I can dive into that, Adam, if you want Please. me to a little more. Yeah, let's, let's, let's figure out how do we know what's going on with taxes, what's a meal rate, all that kind of stuff so people kind of understand. Sure. Um, so I guess to start, um, typically what happens, and it's different everywhere, typically what happens when you buy a property is the following year it gets reassessed. Um, that, you know, there's, there's a couple different values, uh, assessed value, taxable values. Every state does it differently. And um, I, would, uh, I would definitely advise that everyone listening, if you're interested in learning more about this, you need to call wherever the property is that you're looking at, you need to call the local assessor and ask them how they typically calculate taxes. Um, you know, but let's take Michigan, for example. In Michigan, when you buy a property, um, it, the assessed value typically uh, will go up to about half of what the purchase price was. Um, they're technically not supposed to do what's called chasing a sale, but, but you really, it's very typical for uh, the property to get reassessed that year after it sells. And let's say, for example, my property we bought for 4.2 million. Um, the assessed value ended up going up to about 2.1 something. So almost half. Uh, that's what happens in Michigan. And then the taxable value uh, uncaps and which means it, it takes that roof off of it. And the taxable value jumped up to that assessed value of 2.1, 2.2 million as well. The taxable value is what they base the taxes on annually. So uh, once you buy the property, that SCV and taxable value now typically only go up every year about one to three percent is very common for them to to jump around uh jump up a little bit every year um the city or county has certain caps at, at which they can increase that rate that they can increase um the reason it jumps up after a sale is because that's one of those events where they allow it to change so um basically went up to 2.1, 2.2 million. And then in Michigan, uh, we have something called a millage rate. And uh, basically what you do is you divide that taxable value by a thousand and multiply by the millage rate. So the millage rate is 67, I believe in this area. So let's see, 2.2 million 
divided by 1,000 times 67, 147,000. Um, it, it, the taxes ended up going to about 140,000. So uh, we're close there. But the taxes were 100,000 100, before. They're like 98 to 100,000. So it mm -hmm. went up 40%. 47. Uh, that's a, yeah. Or did you say 47% yeah. or 40%? In actuality, it was, it was only $40,000 increase. Okay. So it was okay. a 40, yeah, 40%. Uh, so, I mean, going into that deal, when I first, first underwrote it, I was only estimating it to go to about 115 or 120,000, you know, cause it's very typical. People normally say 15 to 20%. It wasn't until the lender and my sponsor brought it in and said, Hey, you, you know, take a look, take another look at this. I think it's going to go up even more. Luckily, this deal we got at a great price. It was uh, it was just a, a screaming deal. So um, the the increase didn't affect the the financials much, the cash flow. Um, so it wasn't a huge issue. But if you go into a project not knowing what's going to happen, you know, I just underwrote a deal last week where the taxes were going to go to from seventy thousand. I estimated they were going to go to about one hundred forty thousand. So, I mean, they can very easily double let's say if you have an owner that's owned it forever and they bought it at a very low price in the past. So it had a low assessed value, low taxable value. And now you're buying it in a very hot market at a high price that it's never been bought at before. Your assessment is going to change significantly. So you, you really have to be conscious and, and every state's different. Some states, um, for example, you know, market value, whatever they determine market value to be, your assessed value might be 90% of that. And then you have like a 2% tax rate on that, on that assessed value amount. So every state does it differently. There's a lot of different methods and you just want to make sure you're using the right method for each deal and the right tax rate or millage rate for the area you're in. Very, very good stuff. So on that property that you initially thought it'd be 115, maybe 120 and it ended up being 140 on, on that one what was the cap rate the going cap in the area uh probably a seven uh, for this type of property probably a seven cap so i'll divide the 25k by a seven cap which is a value difference of three hundred and fifty-seven thousand. yeah um, it's huge so yeah what that what that means to some a listener might be that just because of the taxes if you're not and he are and David already actually recognized that the that the tax was going to go up. He already knew it was going up, and he already accounted for fifteen or twenty thousand. But it ended up being another twenty twenty five thousand more, and that's over three hundred thousand difference that you'd have to kind of bring it down to make a real real win win. So so the just missing something like taxes could be detrimental. So be really cautious to, to make sure that you're understanding that. And the wisdom that we have learned today is that um, there it's different all over. Taxes are different all over. Okay. So you, they, they have a mill rate or a millage rate. You're going to want to, and I'll quote David, he says, call the local assessor. That's where you're going to get this information. You're going to call the local assessor and you're going to find out how they calculate that mill rate. Is it the price divided by a thousand multiplied by 67 or is it multiplied by 90 or is it multiplied by this it's every different municipality has their own way of assessing the taxes so you'll want to call that assessor understand exactly how it's going to work and that has to go in your numbers 
before you put in the LOI. You've got to understand what's going on. And, and because you understand, that's what your LOI is going to be based on is, is a lot of this different information. This is going to directly affect your annual cash flow. And keep in mind, a lot of times, uh, the lender that you work with, you're, you're going to pay them every month, your mortgage, you know, principal interest. Um, most of the time they wrap taxes into that because they will just directly escrow the payments every month that you make to them and pay the taxes directly. So they know that's being paid. A lot of times they're going to take an extra, you know, three to 5% on top of, so say 140,000, they might make me escrow every year, 145 to 147,000. And, you know, it's going to be even more out of my cash flow. Now, every year, once they pay the taxes and they get the next year's tax amount, they do kind of reimburse you if they have too much in that escrow account. But still, that's, that's out of your direct monthly cash flow. And uh, uh, that's something you need to, to understand and know about for sure. Now, every state, like I said, every state's different. So um, North Carolina, uh, I've looked at properties there. Don't quote me, but I think they do something where it's like every four or five years, they just do a general reassessment of all properties based on where the market's at and it goes up. So, you know, it's not really a direct reassessment when you sell. Um, it's, it's different all over the place. Um, I apologize if, if, if there's any information I'm giving that's wrong, but I, that's to the best of my ability, uh, the way I explained it is. No, no, it's, it's, it's perfect. To, oh yeah, no, it's perfect to note that every city, every county, every state has their own way of doing this. And so just because Michigan has, you know, the way that we're talking about it today doesn't mean that that's the same in any other state. Michigan very well is unique to itself. So again, call that local assessor. Um, I We have a few different things that you went over. Repairs and maintenance, you put 400 to 600. Payroll, you put 1,000 to 1,300. Insurance, you put, you put 350, um, but it could be anywhere from 300 to 350. Turnover, you're putting 250. Reserves, you're putting 250. Um, are there any other things that you feel are a normalized expense for the per door per year? Yeah, I'm looking at uh, my analyzer right now. Um, I, I always have something in there for legal and professional fees. Um, you're going to have, you know, depending on how you syndicate the deal, how you do it. Uh, for example, on my 96 unit, I have an onsite manager that does a lot of like inputs the bills, but I have a third party accounting firm that you know, has access to our software, they go in every week and they'll cut, uh, they'll cut checks, they'll reconcile the books, all that. So we have a fee to them, a couple hundred bucks a month, and then they will prepare and file our taxes along with our tax attorney. So, you know, that something like that, you might end up spending along with legal fees. If you're taking tenants to court, uh, maybe like a hundred a unit a year, um, hundred unit deal might be about 10,000 a year. Uh, probably less than that. Depends, depends on how many, tenants you're evicting, but, uh, you know, you might easily spend five to six grand a year on just professional fees from accountants, attorneys, et cetera. I like that. Thank you for touching on that. I sure. have a question for you. Do you really look at over a hundred deals? I think you said earlier, you look at over a hundred deals for every one that you buy. Is, is that accurate? And, um, and should that be discouraging? I have taken a quick look in the past four, Two weeks? No, since last Monday, I think I've looked at over 20 deals, 25 deals, maybe, since Monday. And this is uh, Wednesday. So, ten, uh, nine you know, days. Ten, day, 10 days. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I'm, I'm probably, I, you know, it's probably a good month if I look at like 60, 70 deals. Um, but you know, I've put out maybe three, three LOIs to four LOIs and, um, you know, I would, I would hope that every hundred to 120 deals I look at, I, you know, get one accepted. So. Great. I love it. A lot of, a lot of good info. So I don't know if we missed a step. We, we did talk about, uh, number one, we talked about how you, for analyzing deals, talking about knowing your criteria. And number two, we talked about all the ways to add value. Yep. Um, what so is there, is there a third part? Yeah. So if it meets those two criteria, if it's, if it fits my acquisition criteria, it has value add. I, I just, if it's a property, I, I, you know, there's some, uh, 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 qu uh, qualitative aspects, not just quantitative. So it's not just numbers. I'll look at a deal and say, Hey, does this, do I like this property? I'll look at Google maps. Does this in an area that I would enjoy owning a property? Do I, you know, is this in an area where a tenant's going to see, is there street traffic? Is there, uh, is, you know, is it, or is it tucked in a corner where nobody ever really knows about it? is it an attractive property? Do I like it? Is it something I want to add to my portfolio? Is it something my investors will take pride in having ownership in? Um, there's a lot of quant uh, qualitative aspects that are uh, important as well. And if all of those fit, then I'm going to go through and analyze the deal, which at that point, if it's in a market I know really well, I can do a pretty in-depth analysis in my, uh, in my analyzer in about an hour. If it's in a market I don't know and I need to look up rent comps, I need to uh, go a little deeper into, you know, is there a lot of crime in the area? A couple other things. Um, I just did a deal yesterday in, in Atlanta. I hadn't analyzed the deal in this, this part of Atlanta or many in Atlanta at all. And it took me about two hours to do that initial review, put together all my thoughts, gather, uh, you know, about five questions or so for the broker. Um, and then from there it took, uh, you know, later that day we got on a, on the phone with the broker, asked him some questions, probably took a half hour, went over everything. Um, and then a couple more emails back and forth. So, you know, overall it might take three to four hours to really get to a point where it's like, okay, am I ready to make an offer? Is this something that's going to make sense? And, uh, you know, should we throw in an LOI? So if it's a complex deal, it could take longer. Um, and like I said, if it's a deal that's right in my market. Uh, it could be a little, a little shorter. Okay, great stuff. And I might ask you more questions on that, but sure. qualitative, not quantitative. Um, you talked about having street traffic. Is it visible versus is it tucked in a corner? Mm -hmm. why, does, why does that matter? I mean, we get a lot. Actually, uh, so I did something interesting this year. I house hacked this 96 unit. I actually ended up moving in and I'm in it right now. Uh, I built out, a, I did a really nice renovation on this unit and I, I moved into it. I want to learn like management uh, really up close and I've got, uh, I've got my onsite employees here and I could, I could be really close to them and, and uh, you know, help them out wherever I need to be and just learn the management business. We get a lot of walk-ins and I, I wouldn't know that really unless I, I was here a lot, but we do get a lot of walk-ins and some, you know, a lot of times they're, they're not the best tenants, but we've gotten some great tenants from walk-ins and that wouldn't happen if we weren't on a, a busy main road. Uh, so, you know, I've just, I've noticed that firsthand. If you're, if you're not on a road where there's a lot of street traffic, um, you know, you're not going to have that as much. Uh, and, and it's just, I think, I don't know if that's the biggest part of it, but I do want to be in busy areas. You want to be where a lot of people are around and uh, stuff's happening. So. 
what after after step three quali qualifying the deal on step three making sure that it's something that your investors would be proud to own and it takes you three to four hours what do you do after that so after that i will make sure first of all um you know i have all the information from the broker uh some people i've talked to a lot of people who are kind of nervous talking to brokers at first um guys it's very very common I mean, if you're talking to a broker and they don't know what a T12 and a rent roll is, there's something wrong. Uh, so it's very, very common to ask for that, ask for the financials. Um, and, you know, once I have those, I'll hop into my, I got my Excel spreadsheet that I built out and uh, I put all my inputs in, make some assumptions, like we said, based on those per unit costs, uh, based on what I feel is, uh, is uh, a conservative and accurate assumption. Um, I fill that out to the best of my ability. I, I look at what the returns look like at the very end to my investors. And, uh, you know, if, if I'm, I normally start with that uh, asking price input in there and I'll input all my assumptions, income expenses that I think is going to happen. Um, I'll look at those cash on cash returns to my investors. And uh, if they're not good, then what I do is I just start working that purchase price down. I say, if they want five, five, I'll say, okay, what does five, two look like? If they're still too low and I'm not hitting that return threshold for my investors, which is typically eight to 10% annual return, uh, and then an overall 15% return um, uh, with including profits from sale. Uh, until I hit that, I'll just keep backing that price down. So I just did a deal where they wanted five, five, and I ended up at, at four, seven, five. Um, and, and to me, that's not a low ball at all. That's a very accurate price. I walked through the property, figured out all the renovations, you know, to the best of my knowledge that I'm going to have to do. Is about eight hundred thousand in capex, and uh, and yeah, I just work that price down until the numbers click. And and I mean, this business is a it's a very numbers based business. The numbers don't lie, and uh, if if they don't make sense, don't make an offer. Um, make an offer at the number that makes sense for you. Uh, you know, don't buy into the hype. And if if they're at seven million and you're at you know five two, then put an offer in at five two. If it doesn't work out go analyze 99 more deals. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a deal out there for you. I'll tell you that. So you mentioned earlier that you, um, you coach or mentor other, some students that you've been working with. And that's why you kind of had this in front of you already. Tell me, tell me a little bit more about that. Do you, do you charge for this and how do people, if they want to reach out to you to see if they could get a little bit of mentoring, how would they, how would they do that? Yeah, um, I, I do have a little bit of capacity for it. I, I, I mostly like to work with people um, in a strategic partnership basis, but I do coach a couple people where we do a weekly call. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'll, I'll walk them through the whole process, depending on if they're a beginner, or if they're experienced, help people analyze deals, put in offers, basically from start to finish. It's a, it's a weekly call. And you know, if anyone's interested, you can uh, shoot me an email at uh, david at obsidiancapitalco.com. Perfect. Uh, that's, you want me to spell that out? You know what? I'll, it'll be in the show notes. notes. So, that, so just uh, re scroll down now and, and you'll see David's email at obsidiancapital.co. Yeah, obsidiancapitalco.com. Okay, obsidiancapitalco.com, and it'll be spelled out perfectly in the show notes. David, is there anything else you want to leave with the listeners today? 
Man, uh, don't give up. It's a tough market and you got to look at a lot of deals. So um, don't get discouraged and seek advice from people uh, that have already done it. Avoid big mistakes. You avoid big mistakes by doing that um, and just have fun. I don't know. You got to be passionate about it. If you're not passionate about it, it's not, I just, I'll tell you straight up, it won't work out because it's way too hard to do it and not be passionate about it. And I'm sure you know that and uh, you, you have to love it you know? So, yeah. Um, I couldn't agree with you more, David, David Tupin. Thank you for coming on the podcast. You added a ton of value and I will probably be implementing some of the things that we discussed as well. Um, and you can reach out to him by scrolling down to the show notes and you will see his email, his website. And again, don't give up until next time, my friends. Beautiful. Thanks Adam. Thank you. Think outside the box. Hey, it's DJ, and I want to thank you for being a loyal listener. We're glad you keep listening to each episode, and I want to ask you to please take a minute to give us a five-star review, and remember, we are not attorneys or CPAs. This is just the stuff you bring to your advisors.